Welcome to Breaking the Net, a podcast that covers the latest in politics, entertainment, and business. The world is more connected than ever, and keeping up with the news can be overwhelming. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahil, and throughout this podcast, I'll be doing my best to cut through the noise and break down what's happening in the world right now with the help of some amazing guests. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Breaking the Net, the first of the new year. We have an exciting show for you today. We'll be discussing rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Seems to be a recurring topic. Important elections to look out for in South Korea and the Philippines. The status of the coup d'etat in Myanmar. Why Saudi Arabia is no longer the shiny new thing companies ogle at and the West's perplexing attitude towards it. A hostage situation in the synagogue in Texas. And finally, why this year's Golden Globes were reduced to just a long Twitter thread. Joining me today is Asia expert and fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Charles Dunst. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Charles, I have a question for you. What do people actually do at think tanks? Can you tell our listeners a little bit of what your day-to-day is like? Is it just shaking hand with politicians, uh, actually producing white papers, I don't know, giving talks, drinking coffee? What is your day like? Sure. So the way I describe the think tank generally is... Basically, they're like universities without students, if that makes sense. (laughs) So it's the types of professors that you'd find at any kind of university producing research without worrying about teaching. So the senior fellows or directors of programs, whether that's on China policy, Southeast Asia policy, education, taxes, anything, producing everything ranging from academic papers that get published in the same type of journals that a traditional academic would to uh, more journalistic pieces that go in newspapers and then kind of everywhere in between and policy journals that are maybe not academically peer-reviewed but are not read by the normal public. So I would say that's kind of the day-to-day is thinking of research that can be published as reports that come under the think tank's brand or kind of outside writing. And beyond that, yeah, it's briefing policymakers, stakeholders, folks who are who are interested. I mean, I don't, my day-to-day is certainly not briefing too many policymakers, but <laughs> if you're more senior and have more experience and have previously been in government or whatnot, it's pretty normal for someone in whatever administration, Democrat, Republican, Congress, whatever, basically saying, hey, we're, we don't know as much about Cambodia. Come tell us about Cambodia. So that's kind of how I would describe it. I will say I've never actually worked at a think tank full-time, so I could be missing something, but <laughs> that's generally my understanding of how, of how they work. All right. So wait, you've been published in the New York Times. You've been published in Foreign Policy. We, we can comfortably call you a published author. That, that's what I'm going with. <laughs> Charles sure. Dunst, Asia expert, a published author. Well, the first topic should be right up your alley. Um, I want to start the show with, uh, with something that is already familiar to Breaking the Net listeners. We've covered this topic before, the U.S.-China relationship. So it seems that tensions between China and the U.S. have worsened as of late, uh, despite the deep economic and technological ties between the countries. The U.S. government seems to have uh, reoriented its approach to view China, not just as a strategic adversary, but as a possibly hostile nation. The Biden administration has sent envoys, including Secretary of State um, Antony Blinken, to the Indo-Pacific to bolster alliances and economic ties with other countries to better counter China's dominance in the region. This pivot uh, pivot is different than the usual security-centered partnerships that the U.S. has focused on in the past, although they are still pursuing those, right? They had the Australian nuclear submarine deal. They're reinvigorating military, uh, military talks with the Philippines. Um, And part of this uh, push includes initiatives like Build Back Better World, which aims to counter China's Silk Road initiative, 
um, to U.S. listeners. <laughs> I think this is the foreign version of the Build Back Better plan that uh, President Biden is currently trying to muscle through Congress. Um, the U.S. and China have also been taking steps to safeguard their respective supply chains from disruptions by incentivizing companies to bring their supply lines closer to home and promoting domestic production of critical technology and goods. The U.S. government also seems to be taking a harder line against the alleged national security risks caused by some of China's commercial activities. Just this last week, the Committee on Foreign Investments in the U.S., CFIUS, and the FBI have announced that they were investigating the Chinese acquisition of an airplane maker in the U.S. as they fear the technology can be stolen by China and subsequently weaponized. Charles, what can you tell us about the current state of relations between the U.S. and China and this race to establish dominance in Asia and the Pacific? Sure. So I would say off the bat, it was, I think it was President Trump who really kind of re- I would say, shifted the U.S. view on China, and which is kind of interesting because I, I definitely don't think President Obama was like soft on China or anything like that. But it's been interesting to watch that President Biden has pretty much just largely stuck with the Trump line on China, mm-hmm. which is, as you were kind of saying, hostile nation, competitor. I mean, certainly the Biden administration has tried to ramp it down a little by made it, making it clear of we don't want actual war with China. We want reasonable, responsible competition. I, I believe responsible competition is the term that like Secretary of State Blinken has used over and over again of this notion of saying, we're not going to actually like foment conflict with China, but we are going to compete. There's a values part of this where it's, I mean, the notion being the U.S. wants the the phrase they use is a free and open Indo-Pacific, where you want a rules-based order where kind of the standards for free trade are pretty high, where there's kind of basic standards across various fields and versus the notion of China's order would just be kind of xenocentric. There's no concern for democracy, no concern for human rights, no concern for even frankly like free trade that benefits both sides, but everything's going to be weighted in China's interest. So that's kind of my understanding of where things are. I don't think they're going to get much better anytime soon. I mean, both sides have domestic incentives to keep a hard line. I mean, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping for his part has, I mean, over the years, the Chinese state has really bolstered a pretty fiercely nationalistic public through decades of kind of patriotic education is the term, where when a country like Australia or a country like the United States kind of stands up to China and, and is critical, China's under a lot of pressure to respond pretty aggressively. I think the, the, the great example of this is Australia, when I guess just over a year ago, they called for an investigation to COVID-19's origins with the idea being, we want to know what happened. We want to know how it got out of China so rapidly. And China responded by starting a trade war, which was totally unnecessary. I mean, that's not- It seems over the top. Yeah, it's over the top, but it's, I mean, it's partially because one, she personally, from what I understand, does prefer a more hardline, aggressive foreign policy. He likes the idea of standing up to the West. He likes the idea of asserting China's dominance. And beyond that, the Chinese state has primed the Chinese public to actually want that type of foreign policy to some extent, where if the West, or really anyone, but particularly the West, stands up to China and is super aggressive, it looks problematic for Xi if he does not stand up in response. So that's the Chinese side. And the American side, I mean, it's obviously very different, but President Biden does not really I think, have the political capital to kind of give any real, I don't know, give anything to China in the sense of there's this whole discussion of removing Trump-era tariffs, which ranged up to 25% on certain goods. And the private sector wants that. I mean, for, for obvious reasons, the private sector wants that. But Biden doesn't really have any reason to be softer on China. I mean, it would anger, I think, Repu- it would certainly anger Republican China hawks 
which is pretty much all the Republicans, but it would also anger a lot of Democrats who have adopted a more hard line on China and are saying China's a threat, China's whatever. There's no reason for Biden to kind of walk back existing tensions. So I think we're kind of stuck in this place for the foreseeable future with the possibility of things getting worse. I don't see much likelihood of substantial improvement moving forward, even if they can agree to some limited kind of trade agreements or whatnot. That's not indicative of a, of a broader thaw. And well, what can you tell me about what China's doing to, to push back against the U.S.'s plans to, to form alliances in the Indo-Pacific to rein in China's dominance? President Xi Jinping has made statements in public saying that um, other countries are scared of China's rise. Uh, they're jealous of China's rise. What is China doing to push against uh, you know, the U.S.'s push to form alliances in, in, in the Indo-Pacific region in their own backyard? Sure. In the Indo-Pacific specifically, that's a mouthful, I would argue that China's kind of might there is largely economic and a little bit political, but it's kind of running into headwinds. And it ran into headwinds even under the Trump administration when, frankly, there was not much attention paid to the region. I mean, the Trump administration never put an ambassador to ASEAN, (laughs) which is crazy when you think about it. There was no U.S. ambassador to ASEAN. There was no U.S. ambassador to Singapore. And even with that kind of lagging attention, countries throughout the Indo-Pacific and particularly in Southeast Asia are almost all trying to hedge against China. And that has less to do with American efforts and more to do with how they read China, where there's, I believe this was back in 2010, basically there was an ASEAN meeting, Association of Southeast Asian Nations meeting with China. And they, the Chinese produced a, basically a document on the South China Sea, unilaterally, Chinese written, Produced it, gave it to the ASEAN members, and said, "Sign it." And the ASEAN members were like, "We're not, we're not signing this. This is totally weighted in China's favor. There's no reason for us to sign it." And I be- I'm forgetting who said it, but it was a top Chinese official there said, "We're a big country. You're a small country. Uh, you're small countries." As a notion to explain why they should sign it. So that kind of aggressive, somewhat bullying attitude predates, I mean, the Trump administration's disinterest. It predates Biden's renewed interest. And in my mind, that's the reason really, I mean, coupled with actual aggressiveness in the South China Sea and all the the whole host of things, countries in the region are trying to hedge between the United States and China, with the exception of maybe Cambodia and Pakistan. And I guess now, I mean, Sri Lanka to some extent, post-coup Myanmar is its own kind of basket case. But the overwhelming majority of the region, even countries that are certainly not like U.S. partners like South Korea and, and Japan and Australia, want to balance the two great powers and kind of extract as much goods as they can from from both of them. So the U.S. kind of effort has historically been mostly strategic and it's mostly been military support, maybe some kind of limited economic and substantial economic aid for basically areas on which the Congress, Congress and the administration can agree are not problematic. So in Vietnam, that's Agent Orange. Throughout the region, it can be healthcare stuff. Whereas it's not a ton of investment as much. I mean, China definitely through the Belt and Road has provided more money than the U.S. has been able to. And a big setback for the United States was not only President Trump's pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, but the fact that Hillary Clinton also signaled her disinterest in the TPP or kind of her disapproval of the TPP because it indicated to Asian leaders who spent a large amount of political capital pushing through that deal 
of the United States is not really a willing and able free trade partner. But wasn't the they, deal very favorable to the U.S.? I mean, I, I think a lot of uh, a lot of commentators at the time noted that the uh, intellectual property provisions of the deal very closely hewed to U.S. domestic law. Um, this that that was a like priority for uh, President Obama and the pharmaceutical industry in the U.S. So, what was the logic there? Pulling out of a deal that the U.S. helped, like largely helped shape. The factor is U.S. domestic politics. I mean, U.S. domestic politics on both, I would say, both the left and the right are far less pro-free trade than they were. And I think that's the result of trade agreements like NAFTA and all that certainly are good. And they certainly add growth to countries involved. There's no debating that. The issue in the United States, and this is a totally separate issue, is that because of the way our our economy has been weighted in recent years, those positive gains are just not reaching the average American. They're just not reaching the average voter. And that, in my understanding, is why President Trump pulled out of it, because he said, well, my people don't want this. My people think this is, and he, I think he personally thinks it too, that a trade deal like that will result in these faraway Asian countries taking advantage of the United States. Whereas, I mean, the Hillary Clinton kind of left opposition is much less pernicious. It's not, these Asians are taking advantage of us. It's more so just kind of, we don't think we're getting the best deal out of it, because, of course, free trade like that manufacturing in certain products is cheaper over there. So it's going to put certain American companies at a disadvantage and manufacturing kind of locations are in swing states. They're political considerations. Long story short, the United States is lacking economic component in the Indo-Pacific and specifically in East Asia is really damaging. I mean, if you actually talk to Asian diplomats specifically really in South, really in Southeast Asia, that's the frustration is they understand the United States is there as a strategic partner. They understand the U.S. military is there to help, particularly in countries like Singapore and Vietnam and the Philippines. But where poverty and underdevelopment are the most pressing issues, which they are throughout much of the Indo-Pacific, countries are not going to say no to China's offers, even if the Chinese money that or the Chinese built roads or Chinese built hospitals might frankly be not as good as Western built ones. They're, they're, they are built faster. Right. It gets done, which is, I, I think, something that Americans don't necessarily understand. I mean, the Trump administration, to my frustration, would, would run around Asia and Africa and Latin America saying, stop taking Chinese money without offering an alternative. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Biden administration better understands this and has made it very, very clear. I think Tony Blinken has said it explicitly that the United States is not forcing countries in Asia and beyond to choose between China and the United States. I did want to touch on something that you mentioned very briefly. So the U.S. has also raised some human rights concerns regarding China. Um, so for our listeners, currently there are more than a million Uyghurs, uh, most of whom are Muslim. These are a, an ethnic minority in China in the Xinjiang region that are currently held in concentration camps, undergoing what the U.S. and some other Western countries have deemed genocide. A podcast interview came out last week, actually, with an investor in the Golden State Warriors, the uh, NBA team, Chamath uh, Palhipitia, who said that no one cares about the plight of the Uyghurs. And that got me thinking, is he right? Well, you know, Congress passed a law to combat the human rights abuses going on there, um, banning the importation of any, um, of any materials or any goods that were made using forced labor. But I don't know what the rest of the world has been doing about this and how effective the bill has actually been in stopping the abuses. Um, there are also credible reports that China's slowly turning into a police state with increased crackdowns and dissent and enhanced surveillance of the general public. Uh, what can you tell me about the human rights situation in China? I mean, that's, that's I feel like a podcast episode on its own. And, and you know, have, have the measures that the U.S. and the West taken and other countries in the world, have they been sufficient? Have they been enough? Has anybody else done anything? 
Yeah, I mean, I think your rundown is is a helpful kind of brief starting point of, of where we're at. I mean, I think that's a helpful description of Xinjiang and kind of China more, more broadly. And I do think off the bat, the Golden State Warriors owner who spoke, I'm forgetting his name, I mean, he's wrong to say that nobody cares. But there is kind of, of course, not a nugget of truth. That's certainly overstating. But I think the concern is not as high as people in the world in which I work would like it to be. Mm -hmm. I think among policy folks, there's a real awareness of China is increasingly cracking down at home in really brutal ways. And there is opposition. I mean, I think it's actually very indicative that this bill in Congress was extraordinarily bipartisan. Pretty much everyone was saying, this is a bad thing from which US companies should divest and must divest now. I'm not sure, and it's not yet been determined, I think, how the bill is actually going to manage that divestment because there are huge parts of China's economy whose supply chains are linked to Xinjiang. So it's not just specific, like I, I believe, I'm forgetting who it is, but it's not specifically just Xinjiang cotton that's used to produce certain goods or the fact that I believe it's solar panels rely on specific goods from Xinjiang. There are large parts of Chinese goods that are in every sector that in one way or another touch Xinjiang. And it's not clear to me yet what the mechanism is gonna be for the United States to actually enforce the bill. But even the bill itself is very indicative of the fact that yes, people do care. People care really significantly about the Uyghur issue. And it's not just, it's not just the Muslim community in the United States. And it's not just religious minorities, it's pretty much everyone. I mean, very active, there have been Jewish groups that are extraordinarily active in standing up for the Uyghurs, certainly Christian groups, kind of across the board, frankly. But China's a massive market. China is a massive, massive market. And firms are going to kind of continue doing business there as long as they can. It's just, it, it is too big of a market to ask people to fully divest from because of X, Y, and Z action from the government. And I think there's an awareness of that in the United States and abroad that nobody is asking companies to fully pull out of China. It's a tough line to walk, frankly, and I think it's a line that's gonna get much harder to walk moving forward because as US-China tensions increase, Washington and Beijing are gonna have very contradicting goals for companies where China is gonna say, you have to abide by X, Y, and Z law. And the United States is gonna say, you have to divest from X, Y, and Z part of China. And those two things contradict and have already contradicted. I think it was Intel, for example. Intel divested from Xinjiang because they legally have to, and then promptly apologized in Chinese, not in Chinese media, they apologized in a Chinese language statement posted in China saying, we're sorry, we didn't mean to offend the Chinese people, et cetera, et cetera. But that's indicative of where things are going, where the companies are going to be pulled in two different directions. Okay, and I feel like this is a topic we will revisit in, in the not too distant future. Um, but I want to move a little south of China. So there are a couple of uh, consequential elections coming up this year. And no, I'm not talking about the midterms in the U.S. So South Korea has a general election on March 9th to decide who will take over as president from the outgoing term limited current president, Moon Jae-in. The Democratic Party, the current ruling party, had selected former governor Lee Jae-myung as its candidate, while the right-wing People Power Party, that's a fun word to say, People Power Party, the PPP, nominated a former prosecutor, Yoon Suk-yul, as its party's candidate. 
Neither candidate has ever held public office for any significant period of time uh, or served in the National Assembly. There has also been a massive shift of the male youth vote from the Democrats to the PPP recently due to the former party's support of women rights and feminism, an increasingly unpopular position amongst men in Korea. Uh, The election has also been characterized as the most negative in South Korea's history, as the candidates routinely traded insults throughout the campaigns. There have also been some weird rumors and accusations flying around, Charles. Um, I think Young Seok-yul had to deny visiting a shaman who specializes in anal acupuncture, but defended the teachings of another mystic who says he can travel between dimensions. That was the weirdest sentence I think I've ever said on this podcast. Um, Lee Jim Young, the Democratic Party candidate, denied having an affair with an actress who said he has a mole on his genitals and offered to pull his pants down to prove it on national TV. Both candidates are bullish on U.S. relations and the new president will inherit the North Korean security problem. Um, but they're not the only ones with elections. Filipinos will be heading to the polls in May of this year to elect President Duterte's successor. Duterte has said he will be seeking a seat in the Senate, so he's not completely leaving um, public office. The four main candidates in the election are uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the late dictator uh, Ferdinand Marcos, Uh, Lenny Roberto, a former human rights lawyer who was vice president before resigning and a vocal critic of the Duterte government, Francisco Domagoso, who is the mayor of Manila and a former actor, and lastly, Manny Pacao, who everyone listening to the podcast will know as a famous boxer. As of this episode, there's no clear favorite in the race, although Marcos seems to be leading in some polls, and Duterte's daughter, who was widely expected to run for president and is a popular figure, opted for running for the vice presidency instead. Charles, what do we know about the elections in South Korea and the Philippines, and why is it important to pay attention? Sure. Off the bat, I think the South Korean election is arguably more, in- not more interesting, because it's it's more, I'm struggling for the word. More words. TV ready? <laughs> it's not more TV ready. It's the, it's the opposite. It's more like to talk about, because there are two candidates, plus there's now kind of an independent who leans right that's complicating things. But anyway, it's much, it's a little easier to talk about than the Philippines, where there's kind of this mass slate of folks and you don't exactly know who's going to come out on top. The Korean election, in my mind, is really interesting because uh, Yoon had been leading pretty substantially in the polls up until December. I mean, he had been polling in the low 40s to the mid 40s for months, um, from basically October through the end of December, mid-December. He was the leader. And that has flipped. That has flipped within the last month with Lee now leading for a variety of reasons, but really, I think partially because Yoon never didn't have much of a policy platform. He didn't have much of a platform and people were getting concerned. He's kind of just like a little bit of an odd figure, frankly. And there was not, there were a bunch of weird scandals that were, as you kind of mentioned, that hurt him a little bit. There was the weird scandals coupled with the total lack of policy that I think has frustrated voters. So Lee is currently leading. It's still too close to call in my estimation. I mean, we're about two months away, but it is a pretty consequential election on foreign policy and a little bit on domestic policy. I mean, Lee is much more liberal in terms of economic policy. He's expressed interest before in kind of an Andrew Yang style universal basic income, whereas, I mean, Yoon is more traditionally conservative and is against stuff like that. But foreign policy wise, Yoon is much more hawkish on China and much more pro-United States, where if Yoon emerges victorious, you can expect South Korea to be much more aligned with the United States on security matters than they've been so far. I mean, President Moon has said over and over again, somewhat like the Southeast Asian countries, that South Korea does not want to choose, does not want to choose between the two countries. 
The U.S. is a vital security partner. China is a vital economic partner. If Yun wins, I'd imagine that will shift a little bit. And he, not, not a little bit, it will shift substantially because there is, according to recent polling, a little bit of a, not a little bit, a substantial shift in the South Korean public where folks are no longer particularly positive on China. It's much more negative, even though China's economy is pretty vital to South Korea. So it's, they are very, very different candidates. And it's, it is too close to call right now. What's going to actually matter is if An, who is the third party candidate who leans right, if An drops out and endorses Yoon, the conservative, the, the actual conservative candidate, he's a much better chance of winning. Whereas if An stays in and says, no, I'm not, he only has about 8%, 9% of the vote. But if he refuses to drop out, it's hard to imagine Yoon building enough support to actually defeat Lee. So too close to call, but certainly an interesting one to watch with real impacts for, for the United States and beyond. Okay, so what can you tell me about the Philippines? From my understanding, there have been multiple court cases trying to prevent uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. That's the son of the former dictator who ruled yeah. the Philippines for, I think, 20 so years uh, with an iron fist before being exiled to Hawaii. Um, where he died three years later, there have been multiple court cases trying to stop him from running for office, most of which have been thrown out. Um, he seems to be the slight favorite. Again, this is a, a four-way race that is too close to call. A lot of the people running have like sizable portions of the electorate supporting them. Well, what can you tell me about, about the race there? So Marcos is definitely, in my estimation, still the favorite to some extent. I believe in forgetting when it was. This must have been in late December, there was a Pulse Asia poll, which is kind of a real survey, whatever, that basically reported that Marcos Jr. had had a 20-point lead over his closest rival, which was highest level of support for presidential candidates since Pulse Asia began polling. And this is largely because Marcos has huge support on Luzon, which is the Philippines' main island, but his popularity does lag elsewhere, thanks largely to memories of his, of his father's regime. So definitely not kind of closed closed case definitely not he's going to emerge victorious regardless but these kind of attempts to disqualify him are related to alleged tax violations the philippines commissions on elections commission on elections excuse me on january 17th just throughout rejected the first petition they're one of many that are still seeking to kind of block his candidacy but they all hinge on the same tax conviction so it's a little hard to imagine that they're actually going to be successful but Either way, I mean, the problem with, not a problem, Marcos, the family is generally known to be a little, not a little, fairly corrupt, which is not ideal for governance in the Philippines, obviously. But if he emerges victorious, frankly, whoever emerges victorious in the Philippines is going to walk back Duterte's embrace of China. The Philippines public is far more anti-China than Duterte is. I mean, over the last year, there have been pretty substantial protests because of China's incursion into Philippine-claimed South China Sea waters. So regardless of who wins, whether that's Marcos, whether that's Lip Robredo, whatever, whether that's Duterte, or sorry, whether that's uh, Pacquiao, et cetera, the Philippines will not be on as good terms with China as Duterte has made them. Again, way too, way too hard to, predict, to actually predict a winner. But either way, I mean, I, I would imagine that the United States will be pleased to have Duterte gone, frankly, even if it's Marcos with the corruption complications. You know, it's remarkable to me, um, and we're, we're going to touch on Myanmar in a bit, so we'll talk about this more, but it's remarkable to me the extent to which China influences these elections. Uh, but it seems to me that, you know, the Chinese have had some success 
um, you know, in, in projecting soft power, at least, even if it's not hard military, uh, military power, um, to the point where, you know, populations are judging political candidates based on what they think of China. Um, and on that note, I do want to move on to Myanmar, because this is a big topic. So last year, the Myanmar military instigated a coup in which they arrested several government officials, including Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner and civilian leader, after the Civilian National League for Democracy won 83% of the vote in the country's last election. Um, the resultant demonstrations were met with brutal reprisals from the military, which has dominated the political arena in Myanmar for decades. Since then, an organized civil disobedience campaign has paralyzed much of the country and made it difficult for the military to get things done. So far, nearly 1,300 people have been killed by the military and more than 10,000 have been arrested. But the peaceful protests may be coming to an end as some protesters have begun training with firearms to counter the violent repression by the military, which has in turn waged a bloody campaign against these armed enclaves. So, Charles, I've been reading up on the situation in Myanmar, and I've been struck by how similar it is to the more recent October coup in Sudan, all the way on the other side of the world in Africa. The military there, along with a number of militias, as we've covered on this podcast, have overthrown the transitional civilian government and have been met with sustained resistance campaign by peaceful Sudanese protesters who have employed similar civil disobedience tactics to cripple their operations. There, too, the protesters have been met with, like, brutal violence. Um, You wrote for Foreign Policy magazine at the end of last year for the need of both sides to negotiate for an end to the conflict to avoid the country slide into total economic ruin or possible civil war. What can you tell me about where things stand now and if there's any real hope for a resolution to this crisis? It seems that protesters are determined not to return to the kind of military rule that their parents lived under. The military has everything to lose. Uh, You know, not just the power they've been used to, but the substantial economic interest they have um, in Myanmar. So so where where do things stand now? And is there actual hope? For, for, for a somewhat peaceful resolution to this crisis. Sure. I think your background was, was again, really helpful. And uh, I think my general sense of things is, one, negotiations are the only way out of this eventually. Mm-hmm. But two, nobody is willing to negotiate yet. So my piece was saying, my article basically said that negotiations will eventually have to come. Here's kind of what they have to look like moving forward. But both sides, for lack of a better phrase, are, gonna, are going to have to tire themselves out before that actually happens, where both the military and the opposition are going to have to realize neither one of us can fully win this war, which is going to lead basically to both of them say the only way out is talks. We are nowhere near that. So what does that look like, though? Like, what would it take for them to come to that conclusion? I mean, if like military- analysts are seeing it, yeah. what would it take for them to, to, to reach that conclusion? For the military, it would have to be an awareness that they can't win. It would have to be an awareness of all the money, all the influence, all the power they've built up is pretty much meaningless if they cannot control a majority of the country. And I think a big point, a big point I want to make is previously, I mean, Myanmar has had some form of civil war for 75 years. I mean, there are parts of the country the central government has never controlled. But this is different. This is different because you now have violence in big cities like Yangon and Mandalay, which that's really unusual in a very clear escalation in the conflict that you have attacks on the junta government in these big cities. So once the junta kind of sits down and realizes that Myanmar citizens are no longer going to accept the strongman rule, the junta rule as they did previously, because when the junta last ruled about a decade ago, people didn't have cell phones, people didn't know what was going on in their own halls of power, let alone in the world. That's just not the case anymore. 
right. I mean, even though the, the junta continues intermittently cutting cell service, people have phones, people understand what is going on. People know how to interact with each other, how to organize, how to interact with the world, how to interact with government, government kind of representatives abroad. There is a complete, I think, unawareness within the junta, within the Tabanov, the Myanmar military, of this shift. The military is an incredibly isolated organization. Mm. They kind of live on their own, within their own tiny bubbles, and they do not understand that the country has shifted under their feet in such a way that makes governing just about impossible. Until they actually come to that awakening, there's no hope of negotiation on, on their end. The only way I think this really comes is if the, the violent anti-junta attacks in cities continue. Only once those continue will the Tabinar realize we actually can't, we can't win. But that's only, of course, one side of the equation. I mean, not only do you need to persuade a sufficient number of senior military officers to change course and negotiate, you also have to convince the opposition. And the opposition wants to root out the Tabinar root and branch. I mean, they have no interest in any type of power sharing with the military because they don't trust the military, and, and rightly so. I mean, there have been the previous quasi-government quasi-democratic government was rooted around a power sharing agreement between the Tabada and the civilian government, and the Tabada ripped it up and started a coup because they didn't think they had enough power. So again, you're going to have to convince the opposition that some kind of negotiation is the only way out. I, again, I don't think we're anywhere near that. I think mm -hmm. the opposition believes that they can still win they think that they can continue battling against the junta eventually the junta will be swept swept out i don't think that's likely both sides think they can win the war out outright i don't think either one can until there's that realization we're pretty much stuck where we are the us has just about no no ability to change things nor nor really the will to change things asean has no just no no ability either I mean, China is like nominally supportive of the junta, but they also want the junta to ratchet down the violence because all that China wants is a stable Myanmar in which their economic investments and their kind of security outposts can be maintained. Russia is arming the, the junta just to kind of, I don't know, they are generally supportive of regimes like that. They want to rub the West in it a little bit. Not a particularly rosy outlook. I think things are going to get significantly worse before they get better. It's just kind of a question of what that looks like. You know, it is very, very striking, um, especially the, the role of Russia there. You know, when I was um, talking to some of my previous guests who've covered um, the Sudanese protests, um, which, which the U.S. is a little more involved in just because it involves a lot more regional allies, similar story emerged. You know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who are traditional allies of the military, do not want democratic rule. Um, have stopped supporting the military. They want them to ratchet the violence down. They want them to find a political solution that's palatable for everyone to safeguard their investment, similar to China's role in the region. Russia has been providing arms to the military because they want something out of it, right? Anything, a thorn in the U.S.'s side. They want a military base, I think, on the Red Sea. Um, and the protesters are currently carrying banisters that say um, no negotiations, no compromise, because they have once more been betrayed by the military. It'll be very interesting to see how both these situations resolve. Obviously, our hopes and prayers are on the side of the civilian government um, and a stop in the bloodshed that is happening. Charles, so Saudi Arabia is in a bit of a pickle. When is it not? 
So reforms promised by the crown prince and de facto ruler of the country, Mohammed bin Salman, also known as MBS, have been undermined by the actions of none other than the prince himself. So a Wall Street Journal article detailed how investors, once excited by the opportunities made available by MBS's push to make the country more business friendly, have largely soured on the kingdom. The journal reports that companies have been complaining of intellectual property theft by Saudi counterparts, an unclear and onerous regulatory framework, an unpredictable tax system that has been that has seen several companies pay millions in new retroactive taxes that were imposed literally overnight, a poor judicial and arbitration process, unreasonable demands from the Saudi government. I think um, they demanded companies move their regional headquarters from Dubai to Riyadh, (laughs) Um, as well as substantial risk to the physical safety of foreign workers and investors. The Saudi government has also reportedly failed to pay for billions of dollars of weaponry that are purchased from American defense contractors, causing those companies to seize operations in the country. The human rights situation remains dire. Several uh, political detainees and activists are still under arrest and face the threat of execution and torture. Charles, Saudi Arabia is a close ally of the United States. Now, the U.S. has criticized countries like Russia and China for their human rights abuses, as we've mentioned, and jailing of dissidents. And the U.S. has even tried to discourage U.S. companies from doing business with China, as we discussed earlier. You don't hear the same kind of rhetoric directed towards Saudi Arabia, even though they seem to be stiffing actually stiffing some U.S. firms on services and goods provided, and they're, um, they're partaking in some of the same intellectual property theft that the U.S. for years has complained uh, China of doing. The human rights situation is just as abysmal there. You know, I'm a, I don't know about you. I'm a huge Formula One fan, and I remember when Lewis Hamilton, seven-time world champion, some say it should be eight. I may be one of those people, and the only black person in the sport, you know, he made some noise during the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix in 2021 when he wore a rainbow helmet in support of LGBTQ rights, and he has vocally criticized the fact that the race there has happened at all. But, you know, franchises like Formula One are not likely to withdraw from Saudi Arabia anytime soon, and there seems to be no real pressure for them to do so, right? Unlike what you see with the Winter Olympics, there's currently um, a diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics in China. Why the apparent double standard? What am I missing here? So I think off the bat, it's because the West does not see Saudi Arabia as a threat or a competitor. Whereas China is a a competitor in terms of reorganizing, I would argue, the Indo-Pacific order, but also broadly, frankly, the world order. I mean, China has a very different vision of what the world order should look like in a system. They want an international system that is much more Sino-centric and and kind of just directed towards Beijing's interest. Saudi Arabia doesn't want any of that. Saudi Arabia just wants to kind of boost their own wealth. MBS wants to stay in power. I mean, it's a much different outlook as a country. So I think there's much less worry. I mean, this is much more a question of how do we balance our need for Saudi as a regional partner, as an oil exporter with human rights concerns. So those are the only, that's kind of the issue rather than how do we deal with a regime that is a problem to American interests the world over. I mean, Saudi Arabia is not a problem towards American interest. It's a human rights problem. But I will say, I think the private sector stuff that you noted is not dissimilar from many other countries around the world. It's the result of kind of a poorly run autocracy. Whereas previously, I mean, not anymore, but in, I could really say the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, China was a very well-run autocracy in that it was very pro-private sector. The government opened the country up to investments and made the climate much easier. And the same thing you can say for Singapore, South Korea, Taiwan. kind and of even a, Saudi Arabia's a, neighbor, the United Arab Emirates, right? Dubai. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a stereotypical Asian tigers, but along with the UAE. 
and, and a number of other countries have made foreign investment easier. I mean, they have made the climate much easier. Whereas like, for example, Indonesia is a massive country, very hard to do business in because it's super unpredictable. Local governments have different requirements than everyone else. It's a very complicated place to invest. The United States is not the world's policeman. We don't go around overthrowing every non-democratic regime. I mean, we're on very good ties with Vietnam. We're on very good ties with the UAE. It's sad to Saudi. It's not, it's not like we're on board only with democracies and Saudi Arabia. We're on board with a lot of countries as long as they are not trying to kind of, I don't know, doing really egregious stuff on human rights or not that Saudi Arabia is not, <laughs> but while also kind of augmenting the kind of Chinese desire to rewrite the international order. I mean, we're very critical of Cambodia, for instance, in no small part because Cambodia is extraordinarily close with China. Uh, my so the U.S. and the West are willing to compromise so long as, you know, the country is not undermining their strategic objectives. Is that, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think that's pretty much always been the case. I mean, right. I think it very much depends on who's running those countries. But Biden administration, I think, is being pragmatic. I think they're understanding that there are a million issues with which to deal right now. I mean, now it's Russia, Ukraine, while you're trying to pivot towards Asia, how much effort are you really going to spend on Saudi Arabia or how much effort are you going to spend on Israel, Palestine? Um, speaking of President Biden, I want to talk about something that happened in the U.S. last week. So a British man that the FBI identified as Malik Faisal Akram held four people hostage at the Congregation Beth Israel Synagogue in Colleyville, Texas, and demanded under gun threat that the attending rabbi contact another rabbi in New York with the aim of releasing a detainee of the U.S. government who has been convicted of terrorism, among other things. Negotiations with the hostage taker resulted in the release of one of the hostages before the rest managed to trick and overwhelm him and escape to safety. Akram, who was a known figure to British intelligence, died in the confrontation. The FBI is still investigating the case to try and identify a possible motive, and President Biden has called the incident an anti-Semitic terrorist attack. There was this excellent piece in The Atlantic um, last week by Yair Rosenberg, who spoke about how insidious and misunderstood the threat of anti-Semitism really was and how it's grounded in outlandish conspiracy theories. I mean, this guy thought that by taking some random rabbi hostage in Texas, this rabbi was going to contact a chief rabbi in New York, no such position exists, um, to release someone he's not related to in any way, shape, or form, as far as I'm understood. Now, um, to our listeners who are in the U.S., you, uh, you would be familiar with the fact that there is no provision in U.S. law that says when a religious leader demands the release of a, prison, <laughs> of a prisoner uh, that the government is under any obligation um, to, to respond. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's complicated because off the bat, I mean, I would say, I think something that non-Jewish Americans don't necessarily understand is that like my entire life, I grew up in New York City, my entire life, my synagogue has had a police officer outside on high holiday, high holiday, high, on the high holy days. So like Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, when the synagogue was the most busy, there's been an armed NYPD officer, if not multiple armed NYPD officers out there my entire life. And that's in New York City. I mean, that is, New York City is one of the most Jewish places in the entire world. Um, and it's still, that was my life and that was normal. And, and that's been the case for years throughout the United States. And I think something that is neglected sometimes where some of these bigger synagogues in places like Washington, like DC, like LA, sorry, like Washington, like New York, like LA, mm. can actually afford to hire private security if 
you know, the cops don't have the manpower for it, or if the cops don't think it's priority. Not every synagogue can do that. I mean, certainly not a small synagogue in Texas or a small synagogue in Missouri or a small synagogue wherever. I mean, that's not something that most synagogues can afford. And I think it's hard to explain to folks sometimes that yes, Jewish Americans have been very successful in this country since mostly emigrating from Europe, whether that's, I mean, my family came in the early 1900s, the folks who came after the Holocaust, whatnot, have been successful in, a, in an array of industries. But for the last, I want to say five to six years, if not longer, I think it might be longer, Jews have been the highest percentage of folks attacked as hate crimes in New York City. And it's kind of in a totally, country, I think. I think it might be in the country too. I'm just the, at the stat I knew was New York was New York City. <laughs> New York is the world. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. But I think that's hard to explain to folks sometimes because it's this discontinuity of A, many American Jews, not all, but many American Jews are, are white, first off. A lot of American Jews are a lot of the most kind of the most American Jews that folks know are successful in whatever field. And I think it's very hard for people to put the notion together of you can be white and successful and still be targeted because that's just not the case for many other folks in this country. I mean, it's not like wealthy, well-to-do or middle-class Christians are being targeted in their churches. So I think, and, and Yair is a great writer. I mean, Yair is great. He used to be a tablet magazine, which is a great Jewish magazine. And he's made this point over and over again that anti-Semitism is not logical. It's all based in conspiracy theory. It's all based on this notion of simultaneously, like Jews are simultaneously like super meek, but also control the world at the same time. Yes. And it doesn't make any sense if you actually parse through it. But I think it's this kind of terrorist idea that he could make one rabbi call another rabbi to have actual influence on the U.S. government is so indicative of, I think, the pernicious element of this, of this anti-Semitism, where it's this notion of, oh, Jews just run the world. That's and you all know weird. each other. Yeah, we all know each other that, that on our weekly meetings, we can kind of decide who the U.S. government is going to release. So, and I think that's one big element of it, that it is with this kind of conspiracy style anti-Semitism. That's the idea is that Jews control the world. They're pernicious. They run Wall Street. They, want all, they run all these things that negatively impact the normal people. I mean, that's the whole right-wing conspiracy theories that like George Soros and the Jewish liberals are responsible for all the non-white immigrants coming to the United States. I mean, that's a real conspiracy theory, which is not true, but I think it's like 75% of American Jews vote Democratic in every presidential election. It's not, yes. it's a very liberal community generally. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I don't think, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think this attack had actually much to do with the Israel issue. But I do think that's been a, become a problem in recent years where there's a real conflation in the American public, and frankly, both on the left and the right, of conflating the state of Israel with American Jews and holding American Jews responsible for actions made by the Israeli government, which yes. is totally, totally unfair. I mean, I think this, I can't remember when this was, but during some of the protests over the last years, last year, last year or two, I'm, my brain's foggy because of COVID time and all that. It all melts into folks were, Yeah, folks were spray painting like Free Palestine on, on random synagogues, which is, <laughs> I mean, it's just not- Just so funny because yeah, it's in America, right, right. Well, you know, it's like, why, why am I as, Amer as an American Jew responsible for decisions made in Jerusalem? I'm, I'm, yes. I'm not, I mean, that's the reality is I am not. 
and I think it's it's been hard to explain that to I think folks on the left at times mm -hmm. where there's been a total conflation of American Jews and dual loyalties and all that so I don't think that was a problem necessarily in this attack mm -hmm. but I can definitely say that less violent but similarly problematic anti-semitism on college campuses and the media etc has definitely ratcheted up in recent years where former New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said his administration said something to the effect of we cannot promise that we can keep kind of Jewish dressed people safe. You know it, it's, it's so interesting you bring this up because um, I think was it a few episodes back I was talking to Cameron McQuirter mm -hmm. um, who's a Wall Street Journal reporter uh, based out of Georgia and he talked to me about this small Muslim community in Iowa and how they have a community, you know, management system. They're all friendly with their neighbors, right? They reinvigorated the town. But for a good long period after 9-11, um, they had to, like, take turns guarding their mosques because, you know, they'd be, like, randomly firebombed. I asked him, I was like, you know, how long do you think this will last for? He was like, you know, I'm hopeful because, you know, there's this community in Iowa, of all places, that has flourished. But he said, if you look at, I think he made a, a comparison to the Jewish community. He said, if you look at the Jewish community, it took a long while and they're still... And they're still struggling. Um, it does seem, I'm, I'm hoping this is not part of a larger pattern of resurgence um, in anti-religious violence, especially anti-Semitic attacks, because as you said, Jewish people are a vanishing minority in the country um, and they make for an easy target. Um, I wanna talk to you about something a little lighter. We're gonna, we're gonna go all the way west to Hollywood. So this year's Golden Globe ceremony was a little unusual as it missed out on its usual glamour and star-studded appearances. This was not a change forced by the pandemic to our listeners, but due to the fact that networks refused to broadcast the show. The war ceremony was therefore reduced to a handful of attendees, mostly those working at the event, and the winners' names were <laughs> announced on Twitter. The decision by the networks came at the heels of multiple financial scandals that have rocked the awards organizing body, the Hollywood Foreign Press, or the HFP, and charges of racism and a lack of diversity among its members. I think something like um, they have 80 members, none are Black. The nominees, and um, there was racism in movie selections as well, apparently, and the lack of diversity. Uh, apparently, members were also flown on luxury press trips by studios, which later received nominations, and reporting by the LA Times revealed serious discrepancies in the organization's finances. So not that you're a variety reporter, Hollywood aficionado, but have you ever watched the Golden Globes? Are you surprised by any of this? I used to watch the broadcast every year. It used to be fun because that's the one party where everybody's drunk, right? I think it's held in a ballroom at the Beverly Hills Hilton. Um, people are drunk very visibly. So sometimes the, the winner list, the nominee list never made any sense. I think Emily in Paris was nominated for two awards last year. The same Emily in Paris that flew um, some uh, Hollywood foreign press members on an all expenses paid trip to Paris. Um, I don't know. Have, have you ever watched the Globes? <laughs> what did you think of this news? Were you surprised? Shocked? I can't say I've watched it too extensively. I mean, I remember Ricky Gervais's monologues are all, I don't think he did it more than once. I think he did it more than once. Yeah. Um, it was just like biting, just absolutely vicious. <laughs> Because it's so true. Hollywood. But that's what I want. That's kind of what I want to see. Where like that's always the joke is that it's yeah. what is it? It's actors, music, and like journalists are the only, not the only, but like the top industries that give awards to themselves. Yes. That's always the joke. <laughs> like, it's an excellent way of putting it. <laughs> it's true. I mean, and when you're giving an award to yourself, you want to be funny about it. You want to make fun of yourself and be like, there are a million other things in the world that are more important, deserve more money, and everyone knows that. 
And of course, like we all love entertainment. We all love a good TV show. We all love a great music. But it's, I think you want someone like Ricky Gervais to be like, this is all ridiculous. Here's why this is all ridiculous, but also like here are the awards. So that was kind of my experience with the Golden Globes. I mean, I'm glad that Squid Game won a few awards this time. I mean, Did they? It's, okay. yeah, it's been just interesting to me to watch South Korean film like start to take over. I mean, I don't exactly know why, but it's totally, it's like South Korean culture. It's, so you think about it now, it's the music. So it's K-pop. K-pop. It's everywhere. I mean, it's not only everywhere in the United States, it is everywhere in Asia. Like every Asian country I've been to, which is the overwhelming majority of Southeast Asia, K-pop is everywhere. It's American pop music and K-pop is everywhere. And Squid Game, Squid Game was what? The top show on Netflix for yeah. a few weeks, if not months. And beyond that, what, I'm forgetting the name of the movie. Parasite, I think, won the, I think it was the first foreign film to win uh, Best Picture Oscar. Yeah. And then there was another movie. I'm totally forgetting the name. But it is it Train to Busan? No, but I've heard that was good. No, it was the other yes. one. Was, <laughs> See, there's so many. There's so many. But it was, uh, I'm forgetting his name too, but it was a Korean-American actor who was in The Walking Dead. He did a movie that's all, it was all about the Korean immigrant family in the United States, and I think the 70s or 80s, getting started in the South. And the movie is almost entirely in Korean almost entirely Korean, it features as this, this actress, like the grandmother, it was like a well-known Korean actress who had never been in an American movie, and everyone was like, oh my God, we love you. <laughs> and it, that's all in the last two to three years. Yes. And I can't explain why, but it's just really cool to see kind of something that is so, so foreign become so popular, kind of in the same way that like Japanese anime. Yeah. Where everyone watches, not everyone, but Japanese popular, Japanese anime is hugely popular everywhere. And people will watch it in Japanese. I mean, I watch Squid Game in Korean. I definitely don't speak Korean. Oh, no, yeah. If you don't turn the subtitles on and watch it in the original language, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, no, you know, what's so interesting is that I've noticed that I think of Hollywood as this, like, progressive liberal place, but they're actually quite regressive in some places. I think the Me Too movement, um, you know, revealed some truly unsettling facts that we all suspected but didn't know for sure about Hollywood. Um, and I think part of, uh, you see a lot of, like, it's not just the Golden Globes, like, the Academy all the awards handed out by the Academy, the Emmys, the Oscars, the Grammys, they're seeing a decline in viewership. The prevalence of taste makers um, is, is, is not as it used to be. Like, you know, a few decades ago, music critics, movie critics, they're not as relevant as they used to be. And I think they've struggled to keep up with the times. I don't think, you know, even with the, with the prevalence and the popularity of these movies and TV shows like Squid Game and, and foreign film, I don't think they would have even been nominated. Had had there like not been, uh, you know, had had these award shows not been facing an existential like threat um, to their existence, because I cannot tell you the last time I watched the Oscars, or or the Emmys or the Golden Globes. To be honest, I think the last last time I saw the Golden Globes was yeah the same Ricky Gervais monologue you talked about, and I watched that on YouTube. Yeah, right? exactly. But it's also like to the credit, I would say, of some of these. Well, Netflix has changed everything. I mean, again, I'm no, I am no movie expert. But it does seem to me like Netflix has totally changed the industry in that yes. you can support it's not necessarily smaller films, but there's much more diversity in terms of who you can actually elevate. I mean, for Squid Game, or this, Netflix ran a huge awards push. I mean, they were doing events in LA, right. like K-pop DJs, and they were, they were playing the game, the, kind of the nominations award game, but with something totally untraditional. And I think it's really cool to see really places like Netflix and even places like HBO to some extent really support what are historically non-traditional things to be popular in the United States. 
I think about HBO being very supportive of, I mean, LGBTQ shows, but also, I mean, Issa Rae's Insecure was on for five years. Oh, that's true. Insecure, it's like, I mean, Insecure is amazing, but it's, it is, I don't think I've seen a show, I don't think there is a show like that that was so kind of almost like a Black female friends, but more serious, if that makes sense. Yeah. But it was just a very different type of show than I think had been on national TV like HBO before. And it's so funny to see how that show is popular among everyone. Thank you so much, Charles, for joining us today. Where can my listeners find you? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Charles Dunst. That's just my name. Twitter's good. Instagram's the same. Uh, and LinkedIn if you want to find me. So just Charles, last name is D-U-N-S-T. Shouldn't be too hard. Thank you so much. You heard the man. Go follow him and find him on the pages of Foreign Policy, the New York Times, and on the BBC as well. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) From time to time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Breaking the Net. We will be back next week with more breaking news. I'm your host, Mehdi Mahil, and I will see you next time.